Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for when football was football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! As you scroll through the list of NFL head coaches and their overall records throughout history, you'll find his name last, dead last. But if you check into his brilliant resume and his coaching accomplishments, you'll discover that this two-time NFL champion may have been one of the most valuable performers in his chosen profession. His name was Phil Handler and his coaching regimes included some awful head coaching stints balanced by some key unsung assistant roles that helped two different clubs claim NFL championships. In other words, his pertinent value was not always splashed across the headlines of the sports pages, but rather deep in the strategy rooms of the National Football League. Philip Jacob Handler was an undersized guard from Texas Christian University who was just 5 foot 11 and 190 pounds when he reported to the Chicago Cardinals in 1930. The legendary Ernie Nevers was the coach of the Cardinals at the time and after taking one look at Handler he said to the rookie according to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram you'll never make it kid you're too small. A native of Fort Worth Handler was a three-year fixture at guard for TCU coach Francis Schmidt earning All-Southwest Conference honors and All-American honorable mention in 1929. The Austin American statesman called Handler the immovable mass and reported, Handler is one of the fastest linesmen in the conference, and TCU opponents won't soon forget the hard plunging and charging of this purple ace. Naturally, the verbal rebuff of Ernie Nevers regarding Handler's size provided some usable incentive for the determined guard. Handler not only worked his way onto the Cardinals roster, but stayed there until his retirement as a player seven seasons later. Along the way, Handler proved to be a nuisance on both sides of the ball and secured all-pro accolades four times. Not bad for a man considered too small to be effective in the NFL. The Lacrosse Tribune described Handler as one of the outstanding linemen in the National Football League. Handler was a student of the game, always watching, always learning, and always ready to accept his role on the field. Despite his lack of size in the middle of the Cardinals' front line, Handler was never intimidated by bigger players. During a 14-6 loss to the Green Bay Packers in 1933, Handler became entangled with a much larger opponent, as reported by the Kenosha Evening News. During the argument between the officials and players, Cal Hubbard, 265-pound Green Bay tackle, and Phil Handler, 215-pound Chicago guard, 
exchange blows. Curly Lambeau, Green Bay coach, and Paul Schistler, Chicago coach, and players of both teams rushed off the benches and onto the field. Spectators also joined the melee, and policemen and ushers had to help clear the field before play was resumed. Handler's leadership and experience on the field was recognized by Cards head coach Milan Creighton in 1935. The veteran handler injured his wrist in an exhibition game on September 1st against the local Kelly Mid All-Stars and was faced with a long recovery time. Coach Creighton promptly named Handler as the line coach of the Cardinals, a position he would retain until his retirement as a player after the 1936 season. Even then, as a player coach for two campaigns, Handler continued to study the game. One of his biggest influences was his TCU coach, Francis Schmidt, and Handler recalled how Schmidt was ever vigilant in his approach to the game, saying, One thing about Schmidt is he never quits trying to learn more football, Handler told the San Bernardino County Sun in 1935. He carries a notebook with him all the time and will take a high school team's play if he thinks it'll work. When the 1937 football season dawned, Handler was no longer on the field but became a full-time assistant for the Cardinals under coach Milan Creighton. A series of nagging injuries in the latter years of his career helped support his decision to move out of the trenches. However, Handler did toy with the idea of coaching on the collegiate level, even lending a hand to the TCU staff during its spring drills in 1937. But his heart and his mind remained in the National Football League as he told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram that year about the main difference in the two levels of play, he said. There's a lot of difference between coaching young, anxious boys and trying to teach something to a professional. In the latter league, a coach has to be better at listening than at talking. Handler took over the line responsibilities under Milan in 1937 and 1938, remained on board with Ernie Nevers back again in 1939, and then joined the staff of Jimmy Councilman for 1940-42 with the Cardinals. When Councilman left the team after the 1942 season, Handler received the head coaching nod from owner Charles Bidwell on July 3, 1943. At the age of just 34, Handler would be the youngest head coach in the NFL. The Chicago Tribune described him as a quiet, earnest, sincere, slow-talking, clear-thinking fellow who's loyal to the team and the National Football League has stretched over 13 years. Handler's initial effort was not a resounding success. In fact, it was horrible. As the Cardinals finished 0-10 with a depleted roster that Handler just could not fill with few talented players available due to the military commitments of World War II. Now here's where the legacy of Coach Handler became a bit tarnished. Due to the aforementioned war effort, the Cardinals merged with the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1944, with Handler serving as co-head coach with Walt Kiesling of the Steelers. Absolutely nothing went right for the card pits as they were called in 1944 as the club also finished 0-10. So should Handler rightfully absorb the combined 0-20 records for 1943 and 1944 when the latter of those two seasons was with a partner coach? 
Well, of course, and that's just the way the NFL record books document his performance, 0-20. There have been other NFL coaches with horrific records in the league's history. For example, Faye Abbott coached the Detroit Dayton Triangles to a 0-13 mark in 1928 and 1929. Then in more modern times, Marion Campbell struggled through nine seasons with three teams in the 70s and 80s to compile a 34-80-1 mark. A pair of Detroit Lions coaches, Rod Marinelli, 10-38, and Marty Mornenwig, 5-27, also steered near the bottom dwellers in terms of winning percentage marks of 208 and 156, respectively. Even future NFL commissioner Burt Bell endured some difficult times going 10-46-2 from 1936-1940, through 1940, coaching the Eagles. John McKay suffered an awful start with Tampa Bay in 1976-77 and 77 when he finished with a 2-26 record to start his tenure with Tampa. He did rebound to conclude his overall career with a 44-88-4 mark, but many still cannot forget that difficult beginning, which is one of the worst starts ever. Yet poor Phil Handler managed to top, or should we say bottom, all of those marks. After stumbling without a win in back-to-back winless seasons in 43 and 44, Handler suffered through another ugly experience in 1945, finishing 1-9. and nine. After 22 consecutive losses under Handler, the Cardinals bumped off the Chicago Bears 16-7 on October 14, 1945, and that win also snapped the Cardinals' 29-game losing streak, the longest in NFL history. Jimmy Councilman was coaxed back into leading the Cardinals in 1946 and turned the team into NFL champions the following year. Instead of discarding Phil Handler and his 1-29 head coaching record, owner Charles Bidwell rewarded his loyal and talented staff member by naming him as an assistant coach from 1946 through 1948. During that time, the club emerged as the top team in the league, winning that title in 1947 and then returning to the championship in 1948 where the Eagles edged the cards 7-0 in a blinding snowstorm. But the coaching merry-go-round continued for Handler in 1949 when Councilman finally retired for good. Handler was handled the unenviable task of serving as a co-head coach once again, this time with Buddy Parker. Would this provide the opportunity for Handler to improve his hideous one-loss record? With virtually the entire roster back from the powerful 11-1 1948 squad, the Cardinals nonetheless stumbled out of the block with a 2-3 record, prompting President Ray Benningson to discontinue the co-coaching arrangement. Handler was sent to the front office, while Parker was given full control of the club. Most reference statistics indicate that Handler was 2-4 as the head coach during 1949, but he was actually 2-3, boosting his lifetime mark to 3-32. and 32. By 1950, the legendary Curly Lambeau was brought in as the next head coach of the Cardinals, and Handler was surprised when he was asked to return to the sidelines from a slot in the team's front office. A delighted Handler told the Chicago Tribune, I enjoyed scouting players, teams, and signing players, 
But the more I worked at it, the more I sort of felt like baseball's Charlie Grimm when he said, these hands weren't made to carry a briefcase. So when Curly came back, I made up my mind, I'd like to get back into coaching. Believe me, if he hadn't invited me to take the line coaching job, I would have asked for it. Handler's final call to the head coaching ranks occurred in 1951 when Lambeau was forced out with two games remaining. As usual, Handler was ready and split his last two contests to conclude his head coaching career with a 4-33 record, a 108 winning percentage, and still the worst ever. Handler left the Cardinals after the 1951 season, but stayed in Chicago with an assistant coaching role with the Bears. Handler remained with the team through 1967 and was part of the staff that led the Bears to the 1963 NFL Championship, which was the second for Handler as an NFL coach. Sadly, he passed away in 1968 at the age of 60, but he was doing something that he loved. Handler had suffered a pair of heart attacks in early 1968. Then while at home watching the Bears secure a 17-16 win over the Los Angeles Rams at the end of the regular season, Handler succumbed to a fatal heart attack. As David Condon of the Chicago Tribune wrote of Handler's nearly 40-year NFL career, saying, Phil Handler wasn't one of professional football's original pioneers, but the original settlers still were staking claims and still very much the pioneers when they welcomed the small lineman from Texas Christian into their fold. Handler lived to see professional football develop into the world's greatest contact sport. When Phil Handler died, professional football had evolved a long way from the game that Phil embraced in 1930. Phil himself was a witness to all the giant strides taken by the game and his contributions were many. Although his head coaching record was a dismal due to the very challenging circumstances he faced, but as an assistant, he won two NFL championships and was a participant in over 170 NFL wins for his teams while coaching for over 30 years. He worked under several head coaches, absorbed numerous offensive schemes, and developed many all-pro players. He was a coach widely respected by his players because he had been there in the trenches, understood the physical challenges, and patiently dissed out large samples of concern, teaching, and friendship. In fact, upon his death, the Civic Center Bank and Trust Company in Chicago commissioned a large portrait of Handler out of his service to the bank as an organizing director. Quite unusual for a football coach, but then again, Phil Handler was quite a person. Thank you for joining us for this episode of When Football Was Football on the Sports History Network. Please stop by sportshistorynetwork.com to check out our other podcasts or to catch up on any episodes of When Football Was Football that you may have missed. Until next time, thank you. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup. The Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast is a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.